Welcome to Radio Free Culture from WFMU, where we examine issues at the intersection of digital culture and the arts. I'm Jason Siegel, and we're continuing a conversation about the first digital music revolution, sparked not by cloud streaming, the MP3, or the CD, but by the player piano well over a century ago. Last episode, we heard about the player piano's legacy on copyright and how the piano roll mechanism led to the mechanical royalty that we still have today. This week, we'll focus on how the player piano's binary music mechanism changed the way we listen and the way we create music. It's the template for MIDI, the current standard for programming digital instruments. And in the background, we're actually listening to a MIDI file produced from an optical scan of a piano roll from 1889. Physical player pianos are still being manufactured, but they're powered by Linux computers instead of paper. Musician Aaron David Ross is an expert at playing or programming Yamaha's Disclavier or Disc Piano. He'll share some of the ways this technology can be used to extend human creativity. Here's an instrument that has been around forever, and all of a sudden, there's all of these extremely new possibilities with it that have never been explored. He and Michael Connor curator of rhizome.org, tried to run a black MIDI file that programs thousands of notes per second through a disc review. We'll speak with Michael Connor about our cultural fascination with impossible music and pushing the limits of digital technology. We'll also hear from artist Nick Yulman, who uses MIDI piano rolls to make mechanical pop music out of everyday objects. But first, let's welcome Nick Siever, cultural anthropologist of sound and technology. I'm really interested in how people think about automatic stuff and musical stuff, right? So there are these two common ideas. One is that machinery is not very expressive, and the other is that music is very expressive. And yet, you don't have music without having technology, except arguably singing or whistling or something like that. Um, and so those have always been together, and you can imagine that this sort of weird antagonism between wait, but this is a machine. How can it be artistic? That's a kind of old problem in the sense of like prehistorical old. One of my favorite examples is in Tono Bungay, which is a book by H.G. Wells. Uh, he mentions a player piano and says it's, oh God, I wish I could remember the line. It's something like a gorilla with fingers all of one length and a sort of soul, which is a sort of pun on the pneumaticness of the thing, right? So soul is breath and all of this kind of stuff. And so the so the player piano is pneumatic but not ensouled um, or a sort of soul it breathes and like if you try to make it play too many notes it'll wheeze and it'll, you'll feel bad about it um, but so Tono Bungay there's that there's also Vonnegut's book player piano which has a piano in it a player piano in it and, and the line that's something like he put in five cents and got out exactly five cents of enjoyment or something like that uh, so it's like you know it's an ongoing uh, cultural archetype for like lousy machinery and even today people say this is kind of a, a of like behavioral psychology kind of thing, which is like what you think is going on has as much to do with your perception of how good it is as what's really going on. So, you know, if you think it's a robotic piano, you're likely to say that it sounds robotic. And if you think it's a human, you're likely to say it sounds human, sort of regardless of what's going on underneath, <laughs> underneath the hood. This is also true for music recommendations, by the way. This is like, if you say, here's a playlist of music recommended for you by a WFMU DJ, people will be like, 
I like this. And if you say, take the same thing, honestly made by a WF community DJ and say a robot made this, they'll be like, eh, okay, I get it. But like, this doesn't make any sense. No one would do this. <laughs> not to, not to impugn WFMU DJs, but, <laughs> but the, uh, the ability of that kind of expectation setting to really change what people think, how, how good they think something is. Um, that's real. That happens all the time. Wow. So with this in mind, how does the player piano fit into the sort of analog digital binary? I, we like to say that it's early digital media, right? They are binary. Uh, it's on or off. The piano seems amenable to this kind of thing, right? Your options are what? You can hit a note, you can hit it at some time, and you can hit it with a certain force. And that's it. Whereas if you took, for example, the automatic violin players that people made, which sounded horrible, they sounded like murdering cats, uh, there's way too many degrees of freedom that you need in order to sound like an honest-to-God musician was playing it. So, so what you're saying is, and what a lot of your research is about, is the piano kind of lends itself to being treated as if it's a machine. Yes. So for, among the people who were into making the player piano and who did uh, a lot of the sort of scientific research, that was the basic idea. The piano was, one of the phrases they used was, a box of mechanical tricks. But what was especially interesting to me was that not everyone thought that. There were plenty of people who thought there must be something special about either the piano or the way that people play the piano uh, that somehow exceeded just those simple things. So one of the things that people used to talk about um, and still do in terms of piano playing is a thing called touch, which is this sort of elusive uh, quality of playing. You can imagine the difference between watching uh, a total amateur play the piano and an expert, and the expert is going to move their body around and do this sort of fancy-looking thing with their fingers. That's touch, and it's not clear, or it wasn't clear, what that was and if that did anything. Maybe it was just for show to look at it, but maybe it was something seriously that you ought to like consider. And so a lot of historians of this kind of stuff uh, have collected together examples of people trying to figure out what the deal is with touch, which include funny things like putting pieces of paper on all of the piano keys and having the person put ink on their fingers before they played it and then looking at their fingerprints that they left on the pieces of paper after they played. I don't I have no idea what you would do with that. You have, you have this great paper that that talks in in detail and about uh actually this idea of velocity that i think we see reflected in in midi and in our understanding of music even even today right one of the big player piano companies uh in the u.s was called ampico which is the american piano company and in the 1920s they had a piano research lab in uh manhattan they were trying to figure out uh what made the piano work uh the way that it did so how could you translate um you know, force at the key into speed of the hammer that hits the string into the appropriate intensity note and so on and so forth. Uh, and there were a lot of different ways that people tried to come up with to record that. There's a guy who works there who's named Clarence Hickman, and he has developed this system for measuring how quickly the hammer moves towards the string. Um, and so the way to measure that was to put a, a wire on the hammer and two wires sort of next to the hammer on its path towards the string. And if you flung the hammer at the string, um, the sort of wire would hit those two other wires one at a time. And in another room, there's this very quickly rolling piece of paper with an electrical wire sticking at it. And as the wire on the hammer hits these other two wires, it connects a circuit and makes a spark on this piece of paper in the other room. 
And so it'll go spark, spark. That is going to make two little burn marks some distance apart. And the distance apart of those burn marks tells you how quickly the hammer went. So the closer together they are, the faster the hammer was going. And so you can mark that down and say, okay, they hit this key at this rate. When it comes time to putting that on the roll, you can transcribe that. Wow. So can, can you talk a little bit about who, who were the people who were making the piano rolls? Were they actually piano players? Or at what point did, did it kind of transition from like it, it seems like something that a, a programmer would do the equivalent <laughs> of a pro- uh, to something that a musician would do. Right. So the first the first piano rolls are hand punched, which means basically you have a desk and you have a big roll of paper and you have a punch and you would punch out holes according to a, sc- a score. And those are more or less going to come out sort of metronomically in time. And it's going to sound like a sort of piano MIDI kind of thing, right? It's going to be, you know, every note will be exactly where it's supposed to be, ideally, um, and that's about it. Uh, what ends up happening, and this is what I really ended up focusing on in my own research, was that you start getting these re-performing pianos. That's one of the trade names that these went by. But these are pianos where the point isn't just to play the piece as it was sort of transcribed from score onto roll, but to replay someone in particular's performance of that piece. So not just you know, Rachmaninoff's prelude, but Rachmaninoff playing Rachmaninoff's prelude. Um, And this is super interesting because there's all sorts of problems in the philosophy of music about what is the musical work. Is it the score? Is it the performance? Is it some weird combination of the two? And now add into the mix this extra thing where there is like a score that is a performance, but maybe it's not a score, especially if you ask the copyright lawyers, we're going to say it's not a score because then we have to pay some other royalty, this kind of thing, uh, which is something we can return to in a second. Um, but yeah, so you so you, you have this transition from hand-punched rolls to recorded rolls. And the recorded rolls, although the premise of them, and this is something that I got, get to in that article, is that they directly extend the piano mechanism out into your house. So you can imagine Rachmaninoff over in the recording studio presses a button on this keyboard, and it sets off a series of levers inside of that piano, which eventually result in a hammer hitting uh, the string. Now imagine that instead of that, it, all, it hits the string but also makes a hole in a, in a piece of paper. That piece of paper now gets mailed to your house, and that paper roll, runs through your player piano, and now instead of hitting the hammer on Rachmaninoff's piano, it hits yours. And it's, there's a sort of way to think of this as a really like extended hyper piano or something like that, right? That Rachmaninoff is now playing everyone's piano from the one place where he was. Uh, and this is why people like Ampico advertise this as saying it's a recording, but it is not a copy It's the original thing. We've been talking with cultural anthropologist Nick Siever, who's currently researching algorithmic music recommendations. So we'll hope to talk more with him about that in the near future. But this this idea of extending the piano mechanism, that the piano itself is already a machine, is really fascinating. Musician Aaron David Ross is kind of at the forefront of applying extended techniques to the disc clavier, Yamaha's contemporary version of the player piano. Have you heard about the networked stuff that they're doing? Uh, no. They're networkable. The pianos are networkable. So you have Ethernet ports on the, on the computers underneath them. And that means that you can connect up to three or four, I believe, um, totally interactively, so that anything you play on one plays on all the other ones. And, you know, they can be anywhere in the world, obviously, because it's through the Internet. 
So we can have like a, a student and a teacher in different locations geographically, each sitting at a disc clavier piano, and they have a video feed of you know the other in front of them, and anything that's played on the other person's piano plays back on theirs. So there's this really interesting thing that happens because there's no obstruction. You're not looking. There's no hands or feet in the way of like the keys and pedals. Um, so you have this almost enhanced. Way, visibility uh, as a teacher, you know, watching a student, or as a student, I assume watching a teacher as well. Wow. Um, and there's also this remote audition network uh, where the colleges that have these, universities that have these are um, allowing or accepting disc audition recordings as opposed to personal, you know, in real life. So instead of an audio recording, which is obviously extremely limited based on um, the recording spec and the playback spec and everything like that, there's just all these levels of compression that happens. Um, in this case, there's no compression whatsoever. It's an acoustic piano playing back exactly the same as it was played initially. And then there's the other application, which is more on like the entertainment level, it's called Remote Live, and so you can have, like, you know, a couple years ago, Elton John gave a concert, and, you know, any private owners or, or institutions that own these instruments can, you know, connect to this live feed and have a live concert of Elton John playing piano in their house. <laughs> Video conferencing, Skype, or something like that is going to be much, much slower um, than the way that the pianos are able to communicate. I kind of can imagine a lot of... Um, creative applications for that as well. The idea of distributed performance being something that's kind of catching on in new media a lot. Yeah, just uh, any thoughts about how this kind of impacts your work? I've actually been mostly approaching it from the perspective of um, extended techniques, like exploring the types of piano music that you can create from a piano that would be unplayable by a pianist. That's what's sort of driving my interest in it. I've been working with... um, this uh, artist named Dan Tepfer, who is a composer, jazz improviser, a really brilliant guy. He's working on a project right now um, that I've been sort of assisting him with um, that's involving uh, writing these two percolator patches using like the MIDI throughput. So as you play, it's sort of playing back to you some kind of transformation of what you're playing in real time. He'll kind of play with the rhythm that emerges from these delays that he sets up and get these really really beautiful, unplayable, um, sort of like live improv pieces. And then from there, it can get a lot more interesting. He can set it up to, uh, we were writing patches where he'll play a note and then the the piano plays um, ascending fifths from that note or descending fourths from that note or something like that. And you can switch the direction by hitting the pedals or something like that because it's all, you know, you're sending a a MIDI signal from everyone. You can even use the keys themselves to, to... send messages to switch different software parameters. Is this MIDI or is this, uh, you know, you say it has more resolution uh, than than MIDI does? Is it kind of its own extended MIDI? Yeah, the, the MIDI that it's using is is a version of MIDI that just has changed the resolution of on the velocity. Um, and the main reason that they've done that is to um, be able to more accurately capture performance. So if you have a pianist playing, you know, a Chopin etude or something like that, clearly the dynamic range is really, really important to that performance. It's what sort of separates true artistry on the piano from somebody learning how to play the piece. So you have this really, really deep resolution that you're able to get uh, different actions and articulations of uh, that a pianist would play, but you also have the entire thing controlled by a Linux machine, so I can send as many notes as I want at as fast a speed as I want and as low or high velocity as I want and get these um, much more 
uh, totally unplayable sort of textures that can come out of the piano um, that are, you know, making use of all 88 keys at once as opposed to, like, the 10 that you might be able to use your fingers on, you know. You use uh, this kind of extended techniques of the disclavier in your film film music sound design work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, I can get these really, especially my one that I've been doing a lot of is sending a lot of notes in really fast succession at incredibly low velocities, trying like as low as possible. So you get these really, really, really soft, really, really, really fast patterns that are playing back. And I'll, I'll use the sustain pedal um, to let the strings sort of sympathetically resonate and still start self-oscillating. And what happens if you're sending notes fast enough um, at such a low velocity, the soundboard starts to resonate um, in a way that is totally, you know, that would never happen if you were just playing the piano. We're listening to a score for the film Buffalo by Charles Anderson, music composed, performed, and recorded by Aaron David Ross also had you know string players and a vocalist and a lot of sound design elements and stuff like that um, but as one layer in the film score providing a lot of like the um, maybe surrealness of the music um, were these textures that were kind of like moving through those different emotional places it was a creative tool that I used um, to kind of get some of that fragile kind of like evolving um, non-digital kind of like sounds that I needed for this film, yeah. You mentioned kind of the the beauty of music that's that isn't possible to be performed just by a human, you know, on, right. on, on a piano. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk a little bit more about what you find compelling about that? The piano represents, at least to our generation, um, a very antiquated format you know you have most of the best piano music written hundreds of years ago it exists in this vacuum in time and play, time and space that we can't engage with actually we can only sort of gawk at and and so i think that for me uh sort of being able to detach from from some of like the outsider voyeurism of experiencing classical music which is you know as as somebody who can't engage with it as a player i can only engage with it as a listener um and i can only kind of think about it through my uh the way that film music has conditioned me to experience classical music which i think is a very common thread of our generation too we associate it with these very specific feelings of that are based on the you know the way we've seen it used in movies because that's most of our perception of classical music um to, to totally disengage with that the specificity of all of that and to try to approach the piano as a 21st century instrument um, and what can be done with it that literally couldn't ever have been done before, which is why we're interested in software and why we're interested in, you know, sort of pushing the limits of, of technology to create music. Um, here's an instrument that has been around forever and all of a sudden there's all of these extremely new possibilities with it that have never been explored. And so I think that for me, it's a really exciting time to be able to engage with a very old instrument in a very new way. Conlon Nancaro was a pioneer in experimental techniques for the player piano. His player piano studies date back to the 1940s and represent a turning point where music was composed not to emulate human capabilities, but to harness the inhuman potential of the machine. Totally, yeah. I mean, he kind of he kind of was the first person to explore the idea of extended techniques on a player piano. Um, I really like the the experiments he did on a musical level. It's hard for me to engage with, but on a conceptual, creative level, I think it's absolutely brilliant. 
Absolutely. I think he was inspired by exactly the same things that I am, um, as far as being able to rescue the stagnant instrument, you know, that's been around for a considerable amount of time, that's been seemingly fully explored to, you know, from, you know, uh, from Haydn sonatas to Gregorian chant to, you know, to uh, Schoenberg sonata, you know, like there's, there's so many extremes that, that the piano has been used for, and here he is discovering this whole new realm of possibilities that's totally untapped, um, totally uncanny, especially at that time, you know. Um, I think that, that it's the exact same thing. We've been talking with musician, sound designer, and composer Aaron David Ross. And here's a clip of Conlon Nankaro's Piano Study 21, Canon X. The amazing thing about Nankaro, and, and there were other composers who worked with player. So Stravinsky also wrote some works for player pianos. Um, but just that 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 moment of pivoting of take of taking this technology that was more or less designed to recreate um, human human playing and essentially fill the role of human player and deciding to see it as a tool of its own, um, yeah, is tremendously important and obviously has ripples throughout the whole world of com- computer music and. You know, everything that flowed from that. That's mechanical musician Nick Yulman. We'll hear more from him in just a moment. Uh, here's Michael Connor, curator of Rhizome.org. I mean, I think Conlon Nankaro is such a rich example. He was, like, specifically, like, frustrated with the constraints of the human player. And, like, there was a certain level of complexity that he couldn't attain in his compositions because no one had enough fingers or enough dexterity. So, um, so yeah, for him, the player piano was this, this freeing device because it allowed him to like, make more complex compositions. And, um, and so I think that, that like, even in that, there is like, this question of automation within the artistic process. Like the, you know, in that case, it was the piano player who was being automated. And um, there are like, fascinations in that and anxieties in it for listeners which are I guess yeah they are quite like cyclical they keep they do recur but we are at a moment when those are those fascinations and anxieties are certainly bubbling up again here's a blackened midi score by Cynthian of Lavender Town with 1.4 million notes about to hit So, uh, yeah, when, when did you become interested in Black Midi? Um, I think that the person who really was first sort of paying attention to the scene, as far as I knew, was Anders Carlson, who goes by Go280. He's a chip music um, musician, interesting artist. And, uh, he'd mention it on his blog. Um, I wrote a short piece on it, the... Um, the morning after I first saw the videos, it took one hour to write, and that has been certainly my most popular article on Rhizome since my tenure began here as editor. So, so why, why is that? So I think one of the reasons why Black Committee was popular is that people are interested in bots right now. Yeah. 
So people are interested in horse ebooks and they're interested in WebDriver Torso. Horse ebooks was a Twitter account that was written as if it was done by a bot. And WebDriver Torso is a, like a YouTube channel with all of these abstract videos that seem to be made by some sort of machine. And um, yeah, we're at a point in time where machines are making things that look to us like art or poetry or music. And, um, and black MIDI is not exactly that. It's, it's more like compositions that are made to test machines in which the human listener is almost incidental. So if you are looking at a black MIDI composition and listening to one, you're hearing something which is like designed with a complexity that's meant to see whether or not a machine's processor can keep up with it. So the real listener, or the real audience for that piece is the machine, and the human is almost like the secondary add-on. Aaron David Russ, uh, we played a black MIDI track through a disc one day, and we played about like 18 seconds of it, and then it just froze because like the computer's buffer had been like completely full, and it had to be like unplugged and restarted again. So that was like the moment that those two cultures came together. And what what happened? Did it sound it just, good? Well, it sounded yeah, it was amazing, and then it just stopped, and we were worried that we had broken the disc clavier, which is, you know, obviously a very expensive instrument. We've been speaking with Michael Connor, curator of Rhizome.org. In the background, it's Necrofantasia Black Remix Beta 1.1.6 by Creeper Gabe, and I definitely encourage folks to follow the links to actually view this with an, with an application called Synesthesia on YouTube. For musician Nick Yulman, the goal is not to use MIDI to break a computer, but actually to play mechanical pop music with physical, everyday objects. Um, I, I wanted to just talk a little bit about MIDI. Yeah. I mean, MIDI's, you're using MIDI to send... Exactly, yeah, yeah. So it's systems that I work with are, are largely MIDI controlled. So it's taking the standard MIDI signal that you would use to control a synthesizer or a drum machine or samples, but it's basically instead of that, each of those notes controlling um, a synthetic sound, they're controlling physical actuators. So in most cases, a solenoid, which is a type of kind of like linear actuator that when it... The MIDI note is triggered. It basically sends electrical current to this actuator, and it causes a rod to push up and strike a bar of a xylophone or something like that. And there's lots of variations on how I use it. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's using MIDI to, can do, to control physical objects rather than synthetic sounds. MIDI, to me, to me MIDI is basically like the piano roll that we see in MIDI is the player piano roll. Oh, for sure, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's... Yeah, again, I mean, you, you have a few additional parameters that you can play with with MIDI, but, but even the more advanced player piano roles have controls for dynamics and other, other types of effects. We've even seen there, there are player pianos that allow for timbral changes, like essentially like changing the, the, patcher, the patcher controlling on a synthesizer. So there are whole systems that will, for instance, shift a row of tacks over the strings of a piano so that all of a sudden you have that kind of more plinky percussive sound of attack piano. So a lot of the things that we are, have grown accustomed to, all the conveniences of MIDI, were thought of and kind of pioneered with uh, mechanical instruments and player pianos. So, so one of the things I like to do is often in sequencing it is do very, very rapid bursts of notes to kind of get interesting timbral effects and um, use this with percussion and sort of in experimenting with that I realized at a certain point that it, you, it's very easy to get actual tuned notes by doing that 
And so it was just sort of taking that experimentation and pushing it in the direction of actually programming it so that it could accept the MIDI note and then translate that into um, a pulse that would produce that note so that you could, was what I call the thing sense. So it's basically this little platform with a very small actuator and you can put a physical object on it and then send it a MIDI note and then it will pulse that actuator at a frequency that produces that tuned note. And then what happens is the, the object you put on there essentially becomes the resonator. So like it's essentially the resonant filter for the synthesizer and it's just driving this pulse wave through it. And so with a book, for instance, you have this lovely opportunity of having a variable volume of like opening up to different um, different pages and that creates this interesting frequency sweep similar to sweeping the filter on an analog synth, for instance. question I had was why you know why make mechanical music and it seems like the people who are making uh, black MIDI had some you know their, their motivation is almost to challenge like what their computer can do like the, their computer is is the listener their target audience more than humans yeah yeah I mean I, I think like that is definitely for many people like the starting impulse of basically like we have this machine shouldn't it be doing something that's physically impossible for a human to do or or push the limits of the machine and that's I think that's interesting um, I mean to me it's it's about like just the ease of working with sequencers as well so I first got into working with this stuff because I mean, like a lot of people I was working with you know MIDI sequencing programs and working with samples and synths and um, so I recorded this album of, of songs um, using largely kind of my own sampled MIDI instruments so taking uh, recordings of physical objects and then mapping them across you know, the piano roll and then sequencing those sounds as if they were kind of mechanical physical objects. Um, but then when I finished with it, I realized like I had zero interest whatsoever in presenting it publicly as it stood. Like I didn't want to get up and hit play on a laptop. Um, and so that sort of pushed me in the direction of wanting to keep some of that same freedom and controllability that you have with working with computer platforms, but um, push it out into actual physical objects that you know, both have some sort of immediacy for listeners so that you can be actually in the room and experiencing and observing how these sounds are being created, but also in some ways has more creative resistance. So I guess kind of what those black MIDI guys are, are, are pushing up against with that is like, what is the limit we can push it to? You know, when you have a physical object um, that makes one sound and you've engineered it and spent a lot of time building it, it's quite different from when you have uh, you know, thousands of drum samples that you can keep changing out. You get a lot more creative in some ways in the way that you sequence it because you can't just automatically change uh, the sound of the drop of a hat. So I'll, I'll often present um, this music I write for these machines um, in what I call a song installation. So it'll be a variety of percussive and melodic instruments spread throughout a space and really using the spatial dynamics of having really interesting beyond stereo um, possibilities for spatializing sound. And then it'll often be presented with um, recorded vocals being broadcast over radios. Um, so there is this kind of explicitly human presence, but it's in some ways... Uh, you know, more distant than the, the machines. And so it's, I'm, I'm interested in this kind of confusion between what is a, like a, a, a human 
um, ex- human expression and what is machine. Machines are in some ways more lively and more present in the space in these installations. Examples of things that were created in the pre-digital era are just astonishing. Um, you know, the, the intricacy and and the kind of the inventiveness of the forms of actuation. So, so certainly player pianos are interesting, and um, that. But there's there's so many other incredible examples. So, there was a machine called the Phonolist, which is um, an automated violin um, player. And so it's actually mounted on top of a player piano, but then the mechanism is its somewhat hard to describe, but it's this large steel wheel that has horsehair woven onto the inside of it that essentially acts as a violin bow. And then three violins are pressed up against this rotating wheel. So instead of pressing a bow against a violin, you're pressing violins against this, recipro- this, this rotating bow. And it produces, and it can also do vibrato effects by varying the speed of the wheel. Um, just these incredible mechanisms and sort of solutions for playing human instruments that are so entirely inhuman. Um, it's kind of really wonderful and fascinating. Um, I heard that the automatic violin doesn't sound that great. Oh, that's that's a rumor that I, I, I don't agree with. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. No, I, I mean, it doesn't sound human. And so like, th- I think this is an interesting question with automated music is whether the goal is to actually recreate human playing. And that was probably actually the goal like for a lot of these machines. In some cases, that was the history of mechanical music as well. It was parlor music, so it was transitioning from the way that most people experienced popular music in the time, which was sheet music would be published, and you know your your family members who could play piano or whatever instruments or sort of play them would interpret them for you, and that's how you would know popular songs and you know, sing along with them. And then eventually, um, it became possible for some people to replace those human musicians with a player piano in their parlor and have that experience of music very up close and personal. And so. Like, I think that's, that's sort of a, a hidden history of mechanical music that I'm interested in tapping into as well. So it, giving viewers the opportunity to experience music on a very intimate, personal level of having it being played right in front of you and rather than it just you know, coming from a stage or from a, a speaker or something like that. It's like it, the piano is a, is a mechanism, basically. Yeah. And you're just kind of extending the mechanism by making it an automatically playing piano um, rather than you having to press the keys record a performance and then play it back. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, I mean that's, that's like incredibly fascinating. It's, it's sort of, in some ways, it's still the highest fidelity form of recording that you can imagine. You know, it's, you, you perform it on a piano and it gets played back on a piano. Um, 
you know, no matter what your sampling rate is, you're not going to get that from digital audio. Um, but but obviously the translation is also it, it it creates this whole mechanical strange and human layer too. So when Scott Joplin transcribed his his performance, which is incredible to hear, you know, play back, there is still this inhuman quality to it as well, which is. You know, I, I think I think it's sort of an important reminder of like that's what's happening anytime with any recording technology. It's somewhat more apparent with the recording piano, um, but you know that was the model for all other playback mechanisms that we still have. You referred to the player piano as being kind of pre-digital, and of course it is. It is digital. Yeah, that, that's that's a fair point. Yeah, so it's arguably the first first uh, digital recording process. I mean, and of course. You know the punch cards predate player pianos as well with um, automated looms and and other automata of earlier eras before the player piano. So that 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 binary system you know, goes quite a ways back. Another incredible example. Um, it was actually a commission from Marie Antoinette um, called Le, Le Genus Timbanon. So it's this it's a dulcimer player. It's a miniature dulcimer player that plays a a miniature you know hammered dulcimer. And it's completely actuated just by a system of cams. So a series of brass wheels that have different contours cut into them that actuate the movement of this little figure's arms to play fairly sophisticated um, compositions. Yeah, it's just astonishing, you know, the level of complexity that's possible with these purely mechanical mechanisms. And then, of course, just realizing that, like, to create something like that did take is essentially on the level of a DARPA project. You know, it had to be by royal commission that something this complex was created. Um, and how far we've come that, you know, some some jerk sitting around in his studio can make mechanical instruments now just with an Arduino. Like. <laughs> out the playlist at wfmu.org to see uh to see some of these incredible automata in action we've got links to videos and mechanical music resources uh one of them is right here in new jersey the guinness collection of instruments and automata at the morris museum over in morristown music that we heard in the show in reverse order from nick Ullman. we heard excerpts from chums to chumps at the concert hall in paris thing synth and Index Boogie, a performance at PS1. All videos are available under a Creative Commons license from Vimeo. Uh, Radio Free Culture is produced by WFMU and the Free Music Archive with support in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts. Many thanks to our guests this week, Nick Yulman, Michael Connor, Aaron David Ross, and Nick Seaver. Our theme song is Smoothest Runes by Thick Business, and it can be found at freemusicarchive.org. And we heard an optically scanned piano roll of Oh Promise Me, composed by Reginald DeCoven, performed by Phil Oman, way back in 1889, released on the QRS uh, Piano Roll Manufacturing Company, scanned and made available as a MIDI file courtesy of trackman.org. Thanks very much for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week.